Blog Talk Radio. headlines for all you news junkies out there. And the headline I'm going to talk about today is from the New York Daily News. In an exhortive headline apparently designed to burn at the stake, the Republican presidential candidates who are responding to the terrorist attack in California by offering prayers for the 14 families who lost loved ones in this latest Mass murder. The New York Daily News said, God isn't fixing this. So the New York Daily News is calling for leaders who will vote for stricter gun controls, not offer prayer for the families of the deceased after the fact. Well, as I reflect about this latest massacre, I have what I think is a common reaction And then I have so many questions. I believe the common reaction to this is, oh, no, not again. Because I think that everyone is sick and tired of this happening. And I think most people want to see it stopped. I also think that most people haven't a clue as to how we could make it stop. Sometimes I even think it might be best at this time in our, this particular time in our history, because, you know, nothing is forever, to make it so no one can own a gun privately, maybe. No one can. And all along, I've probably been one of the biggest proponents of the U.S. keeping our right to bear arms. But you know what? I researched the statistics for England, where there is very, very, very strict gun control. And I found out that, yes, murders have gone down, and the use of handguns and other types of weapons and all types of crimes has gone way, way, way down. But I also found that it is very easy to get a gun illegally in England. And you, and that would be so true here if we enacted strict gun control laws. People would still find a way to get a gun if they really wanted to get one. And the runs who really want to get one would be these ones like these shooters in San Bernardino. And the guy in Colorado who showed up, shot up Planned Parenthood. And the white kid in the South who wanted to kill the black people. And the Sandy Hook shooter. These are people who have a grievance or a personal vendetta of some kind or a personal sacred cause that even they are willing to die for themselves. Well, the headlines now uh, link the shooters with radical Islam because apparently this young man, 28 years old, is a Muslim. 
and it appears that he had been radicalized. Now, this apparently means that this young couple had embraced the spiritual concept that they could be connected to from their heart, and they had prepared themselves, and they had acted with purpose. Now, my question is, what is the hope? What is the sacred trust? What is the emptiness in their heart that can be filled by radical Islam religion? And how were they radicalized? What agenda is preached? What is the enticement? And what is the reward? Well, I decided to make a list of what Islam and what Christianity each teach. And the two doctrines are are very much the same in what in a lot of what they say. They both say they represent the one true God. They both say that God sends messengers, they call them prophets, to earth to advance the ideas of their religion. Both of these religions claim the genetic bloodline from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to Jesus. And then Islam adds to this bloodline, Mohammed, as the last of the prophets with the final word, so to speak, from God. But I also found another interesting division in the original bloodline from Abraham. Abraham had two sons, the son he had with his wife's handmaiden, and that son's name was Ishmael. And then the son he had with his wife, and that son's name was Isaac. And Muhammad is in the bloodline from Ishmael. And Jesus is in the bloodline from Isaac through David, which could fulfill the Messianic prophecies if the Catholic Church hadn't intervened and made Jesus born of a virgin with no father. You know, this is very interesting to me because the entire story of the Middle East is the story of these two sons of Abraham, who are half-brothers, Ishmael and Isaac. Both boys had Abraham as their father. Both boys were at the funeral when Abraham died. And God makes it pretty clear in all of the classical scriptures and literatures that both brothers were important and both brothers as full-blooded sons of Abraham were promised lands and wealth and power and position. Isaac's bloodline was promised all of the land of Canaan and Ishmael's bloodline was promised all of the land from Assyria to the Egyptian border. And if you look on the historical maps, you can see what countries are involved in these promises to these two boys. The northern, eastern, western, and southern borders of the land of Canaan are the eastern border goes southward for about 50 miles, starting from a region east of Damascus. Then it turns west to the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. From there, it follows the Jordan River, ending at the Dead Sea. For the western border, you have the Mediterranean. 
For the northern border from the Mediterranean, you shall mark out your borderline to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, you shall mark out your border to the entrance of Hamath. Then the direction of the border shall be toward Zedad and proceed to Ziphron, and it shall end at Hazar-Enon. And then the eastern border starts with Hazar-Enon to Shepham and goes down from Shepham to Ribla on the east side of Ain. The border shall go down and reach to the eastern side of the Sea of Chinnereth. The border shall go down along the Jordan and end at the Salt Sea. You know, those are pretty clear uh, lines of boundaries. And then um, early research on Ishmael's land was uh, from Assyria to the borders of Egypt. Now, Assyria was centered on the upper Tigris River in northern Mesopotamia, more northern Mesopotamia, which is modern northern Iraq, southeastern Syria, southeastern Turkey, and the northwestern fringes of Iran. And making uh, at its peak, the Assyrian Empire stretched from Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea to Iran and from what is now Armenia to the Arabian Peninsula, Egypt, and eastern Libya. Now, it's always been clear of what belonged to whom as far as God was concerned. But in the affairs of men and in the survival of the fittest, different factions have fought over what belonged to who ever since. This has been going on for hundreds of thousands of years. And as long as there is man on the earth, and man isn't no, interested in knowing who God is or what God does or how God does it, then we're going to have headlines that say God isn't fixing this. This is clearly a headline that shouts, I don't know who God is, I don't know what God does, and I don't know how God does anything or why. You know, I believe this is true of the majority of the men and the women on earth. 62% of the people on earth say they're Christians. That includes Catholics. And 23% say they are Muslims. That's 85% of the people on the earth. And neither one of these two religions, Christianity or Islam, which pretty much say the same thing. Neither one teaches us who God is, what God does, and how God does anything or why. So if somebody wants to get to the root of the problem here, I think this is where we should start. Who is God? What does God do? And how does God do it? I mean, what do you think? What do you believe about it? Christians will say that God created the heavens and the earth. They will say God, he, created the heavens and the earth and everything upon it. The rocks, the trees and plants, animals, eventually man, male and female, created he, them. Christians will say that God is in charge and that we're to submit to God in order to have his will done in our lives. 
Christians will say that we need to accept Jesus as our Savior so that God will accept us in his love. And then Christians will say that we can pray to God for help in our lives, and sometimes God helps us. Because apparently God says yes, and God says no, and God says maybe. I heard a preacher preach that one time. I just, I, I had to just get up and walk out. Christians will say that God has power, but they also teach that the devil has power. Uh, almost like the devil has as much power as God does. And there's a big war going on between God and the devil. And I get the idea sometimes that Christians still think that maybe the devil could win this war. Because they talk about the devil like he has as much power as God. And Christians would say that Islam is of the devil and we are at war with the devil. Christians would say that all Muslims are deceived by the devil. And Christians would say that we need to stomp out radical Islam because Christians say that all other religions are false. Well, Muslims would say that God created the heavens and the earth and everything on the earth, including man. They do not call God he, because in the Muslim religion, God has no gender, and they have no image for God. God is the unfathomable. Muslims will say that God is in charge and that we are to submit to God in order to have God's will done in our lives. But there is no intermediator between God and man in the Muslim religion, for there is no need for a savior. The relationship between God and the Muslim man is dependent upon him not committing any of the five crimes, which are no unlawful intercourse, no false accusation concerning unlawful intercourse, no alcohol, no theft, and no highway robbery. A Muslim is required to confess to belief in the one true God and Muhammad as the messenger, to do good deeds, which includes prayers, five times a day. They are always to tell the truth, to use a certain percentage of their income to feed the poor and the orphans, and to fast for purification in order to go to Mecca once a year. And if a Muslim is amiss in any of these things, he can ask for forgiveness from God, and God will forgive him if God is convinced of the person's true remorse for his acts. For a Muslim, all other religions are false, as they believe that the one true God has spoken once and for all now through Muhammad. The one true God now speaks through Islam and the Quran. The radical Muslim will believe that it is necessary to stomp out all other religions. Did you know that one time Muslims controlled Jerusalem? Uh, the siege of Jerusalem was part of a military conflict that took place in the year 637 A.D., and the Muslim conquest of the city solidified the Arab control over Palestine. And following this Muslim conquest of Jerusalem, however, Jews were once again allowed to live in uh, Jerusalem and practice their religion there. Uh, this happened eight years after the terrible massacre by the Byzantines and nearly 500 years after their expulsion from Judea by the Roman Empire. 
And also during the time that Muslims controlled Jerusalem, they allowed Christians and Catholics to go there and worship Jesus. In 1691, the Muslims commissioned the construction of the Dome of the Rock over a large outcropping of bedrock on the Temple Mount. And it's suggested that the Muslims built that shrine in order to sort of compete in grandeur with the city's Christian churches. Whatever their intention was, the impressive splendor and scale of the shrine is seen as having helped significantly to solidify the attachment of Jerusalem to the early Muslim faith. This is how Jerusalem came to be regarded as a holy site for Islam as well as Christianity and Judaism. Muslims controlled Jerusalem for the next 400 years until it was recaptured back by the Crusades in 1099. And we then have the long and vicious bloody history of the Crusades, which were ordered by the Pope to take back the control of Jerusalem from the Muslims. The Catholic Church offered special penances to anyone who would participate in the Crusades, in addition to an unlimited amount of grace and an unconditional guarantee of going to heaven. The Crusades are a very bloody time of war and terrorism. And this time, the terrorism was Christians against the Muslims. It kind of almost makes one think that Perhaps what's going on today is just payback, because there's a universal principle that everyone eventually reaps what they sow. You know, Muslims must think of Christians as being warmongers and bloody terrorists. That's kind of funny, isn't it? We think of them as warmongers and bloody terrorists. They think of us as warmongers and bloody terrorists. The biggest difference between what Muslims believe and what Christians believe is in the divinity of Jesus and the concept of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Muslims just have God. They see man as the creation and God as the energizing force of all things. Now, Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet of God, the same as Moses and Abraham, and also Muhammad but they believe that Muhammad is the current voice of God at this time, superseding all other voices. It is the voice of God for today. You know, it's interesting to me that Muslims believe in angels. Angels seem to be an acceptable spiritual manifestation of God for them because it's purported that it was the angel Gabriel who brought Muhammad the new message And, you know, in Christianity, it was Gabriel who visited Mary and told her she was going to have Jesus. Muslims believe that angels do not have free will and that they completely and totally serve God perfectly in all that they do. And Muslims believe that a man does have free will, which is why their life must be lived within the boundaries that are set by the Quran so that they can eventually be reunited with God when they die. I was listening to a Catholic program on the radio recently as the priest was trying to teach about suffering because, you know, the Catholic religion is a religion that is rooted in suffering. 
All of their churches have Jesus on the cross with the crown of thorns on his head and his hands and feet pierced with the nails on the cross and the blood dripping down. Now, the only Catholic church I have ever been to that does not have Jesus on a big cross at the front of the church is Sacre in Paris. And when you go in there at the front of the church is this giant picture of Jesus like he's floating in the air, and you see his big heart beating. You can feel it beating, and you feel his love as his heart is beating. I never have ever felt the love of God as strong in any other church, any other place in the world. But the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross was not his sufferings. It was the resurrection The resurrection was the final act of sovereignty that Jesus performed in his life here as a human. His total power over death. He resurrected himself from the dead. And at Sakur in Paris, you feel this. Jesus is alive. His heart is beating. He's alive. I have a Catholic lady from the Dominican Republic who lives downstairs from me. And one day she took me back into her bedroom where she has this very picture of Jesus that's in Sacre in Paris hanging over her bed. And she told me this story. She was eight years old, and she was at Mass with her mother. And she looked up at the big cross in front of the church, and she was feeling so sad that Jesus had had to suffer so much. And she heard Jesus speak to her. She heard her name, and at first she was very, very scared. So she closed her eyes, and she prayed the Our Father. And then she heard uh, her, her name spoken again. And when she looked back up at the cross, Jesus opened his eyes, and he said to her, Do not be sad, my child. I am alive. (sighs) Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He took back up his body, and he appeared to his disciples. He said to Thomas, Feel my hand. You can feel those nail prints in my hands. Touch me. I am alive. Now, all of his disciples were so forlorn and discouraged when Jesus was crucified on the cross. They thought he was going to establish the kingdom of God here on the earth. And the capital would be Jerusalem. And they would all be the head honchos in the kingdom. And for the first 300 years after Jesus died on the cross and then was resurrected and ascended back into spirit, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ideas about who he really was, why had he come to earth, what he did, and why he did it. Because he talked a lot about his father, which is in heaven, and he talked a lot about the kingdom of God. But the disciples heard these teachings through ears that had been conditioned in Jewish prophecies which proclaimed that a king would come of the seed of Abraham who would establish the kingdom of God here on the earth. And you know the three wise men that followed the star to where Jesus had been born and brought him gifts of 
gold, frankincense of myrrh, suitable for a king. This is what was done for a king. And the disciples first believed that Jesus was going to be this mortal king. Actually, the crime for which he was being crucified was that he had been proclaimed as Jesus, the king of the Jews. However, the Jewish people called for Jesus to be crucified because they were not convinced he was the Messiah. Because Jesus pointed out a lot of places that should be changed in the Torah. He didn't keep the Sabbath. But you know, today, Reformed Judaism does not believe in the binding nature of the Torah. And conservative Judaism believes that the laws can be changed. Also, the Messiah, according to Jewish sources, would be born of human parents and possess normal physical attributes like other people. He would not be a god. But according to the Christian claim that was established in 320 AD at the Council of Nicaea to settle the 300 years of arguing about who Jesus was and what he did and why he came, Jesus was decreed by the Pope to be a product of a virgin birth. He had no father. So for this reason, Jews can't believe that Jesus possibly fulfilled the messianic requirement of being descended on his father's side down from Abraham to King David. And also, biblical verses can only be understood by studying the original Hebrew text, which reveals many discrepancies in the Christian translations. For instance, the Christian idea of a virgin birth comes from a verse in Isaiah describing using the word Alma, A-L-M-A, uh, as where the uh, Nicene Creed got the word for virgin. But that word means young woman, a young woman. And, of course, in a virginal sense in that a young woman who has not known a man. So for a Jew, this aligns Jesus' birth with the first century pagan idea of mortals being impregnated by gods, and Jews couldn't accept this at all. Neither would a Muslim. And I'm going to suggest here and now, and perhaps later on convince you, that neither should you accept this. And as far as the cross fulfilling the prophecies concerning the suffering servant, the Jews say that, Uh, That prophecy refers to the 11th century crusades by the Catholic Church, which were not only against Muslims, but included a scourge of Jews who were tortured and terrorized and killed by crusaders who acted in the name of Jesus. The Catholic idea of Trinity that was established in the Council of Nicaea in 320 AD breaks God into three separate beings, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in Jewish law, worship of a three-part God is considered idolatry, one of the three cardinal sins that a Jew would rather give up his life than to participate in. And this is also true for the Muslims. So the Jewish people also cannot consider the idea of God as a trinity, three gods, because the basis of Jewish belief is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And Jews declare the Shema every day. They write it on the doorposts. They bind it to the hand and the heart. The statement of God's oneness is the first word a Jewish child is taught to say. 
and the last words uttered before a Jew dies. And for the Muslims, the daily prayer is the is the uh, Muslims' dedication to the one true God and Muhammad, his prophet. Now, in Judaism, prayer is a totally private matter between each individual and God. In Judaism, as in the Muslim religion, there is no mediator between God and man. As the Bible says, God is near to all who call upon him. And the Ten Commandments says, you shall have no other gods before me. Which, you know, pretty much forbids setting up a mediator between God and man. And only after 320 A.D. did the concept of the Trinity become a cardinal tenet of Catholicism and, of course, later on, Protestantism. And if you are a Christian but you're not a Catholic, then you're a Protestant, which means that you support the idea of Martin Luther in his protest to the Catholic Church that we do not need a mediator between God and man. And in the intrinsic holy realm, of this idea is a basis of unity for Jews and Muslims and Christians. This could be the first area of total agreement. We do not need a mediator between God and man. God and man are intrinsically united. God is the prevailing energy of all things, God is the source. We are the event. We come from God. We go back to God. Our relationship is one of unity, which is why Jesus said, I and the Father are one. This is what he meant. He came from God. He represented God. He said, of my own self, I can do nothing. It is the Father within me that doeth the work. And the same Spirit of the Father who raised Christ from the dead, dwells in you and me, and it quickens our mortal body the same way it did Jesus. So the next place where we could have agreement is in releasing Jesus from the Trinity and putting him within the context of the creation. And then we can all say, Jews, Muslims, and Christians, there is one true God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is the all-powerful creator of a perfect ordered universe. And the Muslims have over 99 names for God, um, describing various um, levels of majesty and superiority. Some of them are creator, fashioner, life giver, provider, the opener, the bestower, the prevailer, the reckoner, and the recorder. (laughs) So if we could all agree that God is the one true God, God is the creator, life giver, sustainer, exists before the beginning and after the ending. And if we can all agree that as Martin Luther declared, we as the creation need no intermediator between us and the creator. Okay, well, where does that leave us? What do we do with Jesus? Now, the Jews say Jesus can't be the Messiah for reasons we've already discussed. 
and the Muslims say that Jesus is a prophet, but that Mohammed has now spoken since Jesus was here. So that's the word of God for today. And Christians and Catholics are so, are now stuck with a Savior that's no longer needed if we no longer need an intermediator between us and the Creator. And perhaps this is where the Muslim's last word, according to Muhammad, needs to be looked at. Is this the real reason for all the turmoil and the trouble and the terrorism today? Why are we being besieged with another mass shooting? Why are we being terrorized by these people who seem to be dedicated from their heart to overturn everything that is called sacred in the halls of Christianity and Catholicism? What part of Christianity and Catholicism are they trying to stomp out? For me... It is the idea that we were sinners and separated from God by the original sin of Adam and Eve, and Jesus came to die for our sins so we can be forgiven and accepted in the love of God again. To make Jesus the Savior, the Council of Nicaea in 320 AD declared that Jesus was something that we are not. They made him the only begotten Son of God and made him born of a virgin. Here is where we have been deceived, and here is where we have been made a victim of a deliberate plan to disempower us and empower the church. And even though Martin Luther did lead the revolution to break free from this control of the Catholic Church and take us out from under the power of the Pope and put us back directly in relationship with God— it was still through Jesus. We still had to have the intermediate between us and God because of the belief that Jesus died for our sins. We were still a sinner that needed a Savior. Well, Jews and Muslims do not need a Savior. Their relationship with God is direct and unobstructed. Christians and Catholics have to go to God through Jesus. And here is where that constant fear of not really being connected to God especially in Catholicism where there are so many ways you can still be in sin and you might die in your sin. And there's even division among Christians that if you are once saved, do you stay saved no matter what or or can you lose your salvation? And most Christians, I think, would say you can lose your salvation. So it's a dichotomy. We are saved, but we can lose our salvation. A Jew and a Muslim never has to face this problem. They don't need to be saved in the first place. Could this make their religion perhaps more attractive? I kind of like the idea that I can be on God's side no matter what, especially if God is in charge and has all the power. I want to be on his side. So if as Christians and Catholics we could see ourselves as being in relationship with God, the way that Jews and Muslims see themselves as being in relationship with God, then what do we do with Jesus? Now, we've come to the real reason why I wanted to do this show at all today. Because, first of all, Jesus was a human like you and me. In the Bible, it says he was made perfect. He didn't start out being perfect. I believe his soul journey started out as Adam. 
And we all know what Adam did. That was the first mistake. Adam blamed it on Eve, and women have been paying the price for that ever since. Another incarnation was as King David. Still a long ways from being perfect, he lusted after Bathsheba, had her husband killed, and took her for himself. David said in one of his psalms, I've ascended into heaven, and thou art there. I have descended into hell, and thou art there. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Jesus' Christmas story is the story of his last incarnation here on earth. He passed his final act of sonship. He conquered death, the last enemy, and was resurrected. He is alive. And he said that while he was here, what he did, we can do. He said his kingdom was not of the earth in the sense that there would be a mortal king set up to rule in the kingdoms of men all over the earth. He said the kingdom was within each person. And he said that everything that he did, he did through the power of his father, which was God, the supreme creator of all there is, the energizing power of God, which is in all creation. The energizing power of God holds everything together. The rocks, the trees, the roses, the animals, and you and me. We are all manifestations of the energizing power of God. God is all there is. God is in all and God is manifested by all there is. Yes, Jesus was a manifestation of God, but so are you and me. And what Jesus did, we can do. And the way the kingdom of God is going to come upon the earth is through you and me. And I believe that the only way a person can be able to bring the kingdom of God from out of himself or herself out upon the earth is to realize that they are just like Jesus. Or to put it in another way, Jesus was just like us. And God says that the heart of God beats with an agonizing sorrow as God looks for the creation to declare his glory. What did we say at Christmas? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill towards all men. We are God's glory. All of us, the Jews, the Muslims, the Catholics, the Christians, we are God's glory. We are God's creation. We are all brothers and sisters, just like some of us are half-brothers and half-sisters, just like Ishmael and Isaac. We are family, and we need to find some way to get along, to love one another, respect one another, allow space for each of us to be in our own personal relationship with God in our own way within the sovereignty of our own soul's purpose. No one is to decree what is the truth for us. Only we can decree what is true for our own personal self. And when each one of us releases the other one to search out our own personal truth, then we will see the others lay down their weapons 
because there won't be any longer any need to fight because we'll all be free to be in relationship with the one true source of all life, whether you call God Jehovah or Allah or Christ or Brahma. I mean, there are many, many, many names for God throughout all of the esoteric literatures. Choose one that has meaning for you and then seek out the wisdom and revelation that God has just for you and no one else. Each of us is a unique and very personal manifestation of the one true God. Let our lives so shine among men now as to begin to reveal God as love.